Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Sermon Series. สวัสดีค่ะยินดีต้อนรับสู่บทเทศนาของบท Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. And here's this week's sermon. We hope you enjoy it too. <coughs> Today, as we continue the series through John, I'm preaching from John chapter four. Verses 43 through 54, starting with verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, "Sir, come down before my child dies." "Go," Jesus replied, "your son will live." The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, "Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him." Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, "Your son will live." So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea. To Galilee, Jesus had a problem when he ministered in Galilee. It's called familiarity. People in Galilee, especially in Nazareth, had a hard time believing that the guy who fixed their table leg was a rabbi or a prophet or the Messiah of Israel. A prophet has no honor in his own backyard, especially with kids you played with years before. But that. But something changed their minds. They had been at the Passover when Jesus preached there and saw the crowds. They had been at the Passover and watched in amazement as Jesus performed miracle after miracle, and they were shocked and astounded when he cleansed the temple. It's, he, it, John says, taking authority over even the Pharisees of that day. It made quite an impression on the home crowd. So it says they reconsidered their positions about Jesus, and it says they welcomed him when he got there. Jesus returned to Cana, the place of family, in his first miracle, and there a royal official whose son was dying came to Jesus. This created quite a stir, by the way. This guy was high up in Herod's palace. He was part of the governing class in that region. People knew his name and respected his status. And it says, right in front of Jesus and Jesus' disciples and a crowd who came to see why such a ruler would come to that part of Galilee, it says this official begged, begged Jesus to come and heal his son. People were shocked. Royal officials and itinerant Jewish rabbis run in very different social circles. Royalty does not beg ex-carpenters for a favor in front of God and everybody else. But desperate times call for desperate measures. This man's son was dying, 
and nothing was going to stop him from getting to Jesus. And he says, sir, sir, I love that. He addresses this man who just below the king, this man addresses Jesus as his superior. Sir, come before my child dies. And in the Greek, my child would be more accurately interpreted, come before my dear, dear child dies, the son I love so much. You can hear the agony and the desperation in his words. This desperate official left his son's bedside and he walked 20 miles from Capernaum to Cana through desert terrain in order to reach Jesus. When I, uh, Vince Book took me to Israel for a week a, a few years ago, I was just astounded that when putting names to certain and, and, and seeing where they were and seeing that terrain, I want you to know that walking 20 miles in the Holy Land is quite a walk. Plus, Capernaum was 700 feet below sea level, so much of that journey was uphill. It would take a person in extremely good shape at least a day or two to make the trek. Isn't the love we feel for our children amazing? What would we not do for them if they were in real trouble? We would move heaven and earth to help them, wouldn't we? This royal official did. This man would not let anything stop him from getting his son help, including his public image and his pride. When it came to his child's well-being, he forgot his status, he forgot his position, he forgot his power, and begged Jesus for mercy on behalf of his son in front of a crowd of Galilean strangers. At this point, Jesus says something strange. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. In the Greek, you people is in the plural. Jesus is not talking to this official. He is talking to the crowd. He's telling them who gathered around, because Jesus had a lot of hangers on who hung around him for the wrong reasons. And he was telling them, I am not here to jump through your hoops and satisfy your desire to see something spectacular. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to stir your emotions and satisfy your curiosity or feed your nationalism. The circus is not in town. My agenda is bigger than yours. I am about my father's business, not yours. And by the way, this would not be the last time Jesus makes such remarks like this to the crowds. More than one crowd wanted to get Jesus off task. And then Jesus answers this desperate man's pleas. He looks at him and says, go, your son will live. And it says that the man took Jesus at his word and left. Have you ever thought that if this man hadn't walked 20 miles in order to plead with Jesus, there's no story here? No miracle? Just a funeral no one remembers 2,000 years later? In Scripture, most miracles, especially the ones Jesus performed, are initiated by someone else other than Jesus. This royal official initiated the miracle we're reading about today. If he hadn't, worked, hadn't walked 20 miles, I'm not preaching this morning, on this anyway. Remember what James says? You have not because you ask not. In Hebrews, we are told to come boldly to the throne of grace. We are invited to pour out all we are to God and to ask Him for anything and everything that's in our hearts. As James indicated... Many answers to prayer require our initiation, require our efforts to get things rolling. 
And if we don't initiate them through prayer, nothing will happen. You have not because you ask not. As Wesley said, God does nothing except in answer to prayer. This royal official walked 20 miles to get into the presence of Jesus. Sometimes prayer's like that. We have to pray until we get into the presence of Jesus and hear from him. We have to pray until we get an answer. We have to pray step by step through our doubts, through our pessimism, through our pain, until we get to Cana, until we touch the hem of his garment, until we change or something else changes. Sometimes we're called to pray until we push through the noisy crowd in our heads and our hearts in order to hear from God. The old-timers in the holiness movement called it praying through. And praying through meant I'm not stopping praying until I hear from God. Because sometimes to hear from Jesus, we have to walk 20 miles in prayer. We have to go out of our way seeking his face. We have to do more than a five-minute prayer for some things to happen. Sometimes you pray. And nothing happens. And you know what you do? You pray again. And you pray again until you hear Jesus say, go, the answer's coming. Like Hannah praying relentlessly and desperately for a child until God said yes. Or Paul praying relentlessly for a thorn in his flesh to be removed and God said no. This thorn stays, but my grace will increase and help you to operate at a whole new level of spirituality. Are you willing to walk in prayer from Capernaum to Cana? Are you willing to persevere till God breaks through? Are you desperate for God to move in new ways or needed ways? That's been my prayer for several months. Lord, make us hungry. Make us thirsty. Make us desperate to see you move and save and deliver and heal. Make us desperate enough to walk 20 miles through the deserts of our own hearts to get to you. And if your prayers go answered, unanswered, the answer to that is easy. You pray some more. You take another step towards Cana. You persevere. You pray until you hear from Jesus. Now, I know some of you are going, well, that sounds like works to me. No. As Dallas Willard said, God is not against effort. He is against earning. We earn nothing from God. But that doesn't mean prayer and things like that to get into God's presence doesn't require some effort on our part. Did you notice that in this story, Jesus did not answer the official's request the way he asked it? What did this official say? He said, come down to Capernaum before my son dies. And Jesus did not. He answered this man's prayer in a totally unexpected way. The official's plea was, Jesus, you come. Jesus' answer was, no, you go. Jesus answers prayer, but often it is not in the way we expect. We all come to God with our agendas and are invited to. God wants us to. Jesus, do it this way and do it within this time frame. And that's okay too. But just like with the official, Jesus has something much larger in mind than our agendas. In this case, Jesus wanted to do greater things than just physically heal this man's son. Why? Because Jesus is after worse, worse diseases than were in that boy's body. 
Jesus, so Jesus gives the official more than he asked for. I love that. Jesus' first miracle in turning water into wine was because Jesus could mutate molecules into anything he wanted. He even made water a floorboard one day on the, on the Sea of Galilee. But the second miracle in Galilee involved something entirely new. The second miracle of Jesus involved not just healing someone's body by rearranging molecules and making them well. Jesus performed a miracle that transcended time and space. Jesus spoke to a human body 20 miles away and healed it. In most of Jesus' miracles, Jesus was physically present. Not in this case. What the royal official saw when he got back home was a power he had never dreamed of. How could a man 20 miles away in Cana cast out a disease in a boy in Capernaum? To this official's everlasting credit, he did what Jesus told him to do. He left. He went home. He probably had tons of questions. What is Jesus up to? But it says he did what? He took him at his word and left. He walked 20 miles back to Capernaum. This is real faith. Real faith is believing in the goodness and loving heart of Jesus even more than our proposed solutions. When we pray, we must be humble enough to value God's solutions more than ours. Humility realizes that our Lord is a whole lot smarter than we are. And He just may have a better plan than we do. God answers our, to our requests, even if we don't understand them, are grounded in his compassion and wisdom. I got good news. God is totally for you today. He is totally in love with you. He only wants what is best for you. As one person put it, God sometimes answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for had we known what he knows. Sometimes Jesus says no because his plan is simply better than our plan, better than what we want. His no is always better than our yes. When my boys were small, they'd ask for things or do things I knew weren't good for them. And often they couldn't understand why I said no so much. But dad, why can't I put this knife in those little holes in the wall? It'll fit. I did not and could not explain to a four-year-old how electricity works and the effects of a person when alternating currents flow through their body. My answer was always the standard, because I said so. Don't put the knife in the socket. Plus, it will raise the electric bill if you get electrocuted. And I'll never hear the end of it from your mother. My no's were every bit as grounded and love as my yeses were. So are God's. Sometimes we miss God's answers because we can't imagine a better answer than the one we propose. Real prayer, as I said before, involves faith in God's absolute goodness and His absolute compassion. And if we do believe what I've just said, that means when we pray, we not only pray in faith, we pray in humility. We pray with an openness to guard God's larger agenda, to his better answer than we might have. 
I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the Persian Empire? He, he builds a 90-foot tall statue of himself, and he t- tells everybody within sight, bow down and worship this statue of myself. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse because they said, we don't bow down and worship anything or anyone but the God of Israel. So Nebuchadnezzar demands an explanation when everybody bows down except these three. And he didn't like the explanation. And he said, we are going to throw you into the furnace. In Daniel 3.17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. We love that part of the prayer, don't we? But here's the part I love in the next verse, in verse 18. And they go, but if not, but if not, we will still not worship you as God. There are things more important to us than our physical lives. God can and deliver us, but if not, our God is still our God and our lives are in his hands. And at that moment, Faith and humility were wedded together. They said, Lord, we think we know your will, and we are trusting in you, but no matter what happens, we will trust in you anyway. Or take Abraham when he went to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. When Isaac asked Abraham, where's the sacrifice? Abraham responds, God will provide. God you see, promised to Abraham that through him, a people as uh, abundant as the stars in heaven and the sands on the sea were going to be formed because of what Abraham was doing. But here's the kicker. It depended on Isaac, the miracle child, to take place. What a conundrum. God wants me to sacrifice my, his, my son, and if, but if the, I sacrifice my son... God's promises can't come true. Yet Abraham was going to do what God said, even if it meant killing and sacrificing Isaac. Why? Because Abraham's faith was in the God who called him and sustained him and led him, not in Isaac, the miracle child. And if he had to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham believed God would still not lie and his word would not be broken. In fact, in the New Testament, it says Abraham believed that if he killed Isaac, God would resurrect him from the dead. And so Abraham says, whatever, I trust you, I believe you, I believe you are not lying, I believe you will provide somehow, whether it's a ram in the bush or the resurrection of a dead son. I know you will, you will make a way. I'm sure Abraham was rooting for ram in the bush because he could hear the conversation when he got home to Sarah. What did you and your father do today? Well, dad killed me and God resurrected me. Your father did what? <laughs> hmm. Abraham believed in God and his goodness even if he could understand nothing else going on around him. That is faith, that is humility and openness to newer, greater possibilities. That is what it is about. James Moore said that some years ago he had the unique privilege of working with D.L. Dykes. For 12 years, he said, I worked with him and learned more from D.L. in the first six months 
than from all my ministerial education courses put together. He said, I could spend days telling you DL stories, but there is one in particular that taught me the meaning of coming to, to God in perfect trust. He said, our staff at this large church had come up with a bold new program that we were so excited about and committed to. We were, cert we were certain there would be, it would be a great thing to do, but it was going to take a lot of time a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of resources. We had to convince the church's board to approve the program and to give us the financial resources to do it right. And finally, he said, the night came to present the program to the board. We younger ministers on the staff were pumped up and ready to wow the board with our presentation. Why don't we go up to the sanctuary and kneel at the altar together and pray before we go over to the board meeting, DL said to us. Great idea. The four of us went to the altar, knelt, and took turns praying. The three of us younger ministers prayed like this. Lord, give us the right words to say in the right spirit. Give us the power of persuasion. Help us convince the board to approve this. Help us show them how important this is. Open their hearts, Lord, and let them be receptive. And on and on we prayed, he said. And when we got through, very quietly and very humbly, D.L. began to pray. Moore said it was 20 years ago, and I still remember his exact words. Father, if this is your will, bless us with success. And if it is not your will, bless us with failure. At first, Moore said I wanted to grab him and say, oh, D.L., don't say that. But then as I thought about it, he said I realized he was right. If it's not God's will, failure is a blessing. It's best not to succeed. If it's not God's will, it's best not to do it. That's what it means to pray thy will be done, to pray in the spirit of complete trust. Because prayer is not some arrogant attempt to convince God to do what we want to do, like we're in charge and we're the ones with the brains. Prayer is coming to God in trust and humility, saying, Oh God, you know what is best. Show me how to get in line with that and pray with that. Show me how to give my energy to that. Make me an instrument of your will. There, we all, you know, we, we have these two camps that drive me crazy. You know, there's the, there's the camp that just says, well, name it and claim it, whatever. If you just insist on it, God's going to give it to you. He's going to give it to you all right, but he's not, you know. And then there's the other camp that's just so passive about prayer, like, like, you know, it really doesn't matter, you know, we're functional Calvinists, what it will be, will be. No, the Bible doesn't teach either of them. The Bible teaches have faith because when you start praying, it will set off a chain reaction that you do not know where it will stop. It will stir God's heart and God will start moving. We must pray. But... As we pray in faith, we almost must pray in humility and go always, thy will be done. Here's my best thinking, but God of the universe, you might have a better insight than me. How about that? And while we're on this topic, sometimes before God answers our prayers for this or that, he starts working on us. And sometimes God takes us places where all we have left and all we have left to depend on is Jesus. 
Not doctors, not portfolios, not education, not any human relationship. Sometimes God lets us come to the place where we have to depend on him and nothing else. Have you ever been there? Because there are times when Jesus strips away, lets everything be stripped away because he wants you to, to discover just who and just what you really trust, what you really believe in. He wants you to see who or what you depend on. J.D. Greer said that he spoke to a friend who they had gone through seminary together. And he said, three years ago, my friend was diagnosed with severe leukemia. And he said, it was so bad that my friend said that every ministry dream he had was taken away. He told Greer that as he lay on his back in a hospital room, he was forced to ask himself when he really, really had nothing left, he had to ask himself this question, is Jesus really enough even for this? If he never pastored, if he never got married, if he never had children, if he never had good health again, was Jesus enough to know joy even now? God's biggest agenda for all of us is to know that Jesus is enough. No matter what, good health or bad health, prosperity or tribulation, loss or gain, I'm here to tell you today, Jesus is enough. Because He is our source. He is our source of love. He is our source of security. He is our source of meaning. Jesus is enough. Even if you have to spend the rest of your life in a bed, I have news for you. Jesus is right there in that bed with you. And He can give you unbelievably joy in that bed. As Larry Crabb wrote, you might never really know if Jesus is all you need, until he is all you have left. Jesus' greatest gift, and we must never forget this in prayer, Jesus' greatest gift is himself, always. He is our source. He transcends every circumstance. When the royal official got home, his son was healed. And when he asked, when did this happen, they told him. And this Roman official, being good with numbers, did the math. The fever broke precisely when Jesus said, your son is well. And suddenly this official realized who he was dealing with. He was dealing with a man who not only had authority over illness, but whose power superseded the laws of nature itself, including time and distance. And it says when he realized that, he and his whole household believed. The minor miracle that day was a young boy's healing in Capernaum. The greater miracle that day was that an entire family had their destinies changed forever. Jesus' larger agenda had been accomplished. A man pleaded for his son to be physically well, but he got so much more than that. Salvation visited his home. And not only did his whole family get saved, I'm sure they affected many others. He was a man of influence. Jesus gave this man so much more than what he wanted or expected. He wanted his son to be saved from physical death. 
But Jesus healed an entire family and many others from a disease they didn't even know they had until Jesus showed up. That's why Jesus wants us to be open to him when we pray, to be open to his larger agenda, to be receptive to the so much more he wants to give, like a deeper revelation of himself, a deeper bond with him, a deeper love, and all kinds of other creative things. So we pray. This is the year of prayer. We must pray. And again, I'll simply say this. When you pray, just start where you are. Say what you want. Dump the whole load. And ask for what you want because it makes a difference. Who knows what will happen? Every time I pray for somebody, the first thing I pray for is a miracle. And if a miracle doesn't show up, I pray for whatever answer God has and that we can discover it together. I pray for God's greater answer that is on the way. So we pray. And then, at some point in the prayer, we have to be open to what God just may give you, which is so much better than what you prayed for. Pray until Jesus heals what really needs healing. Pray that Jesus does what really needs doing. And sometimes we may not know that till Jesus does it. Be open to God answering prayers in ways that surprise us and take us deeper in him. You can't screw up a prayer. You really can't. God will either give you the answer you want or he's going to give you a better one. How do you lose in that deal? How do you lose? Come boldly. Pray. One more time. I uh, want us to pray for where God wants this church. Pray for the transition. Pray for new ministries. Pray for healing and salvation and for the Spirit to flow through this place like Niagara Falls. This is what we pray for. And it will not be, if we want that to happen, it will not be an individual or a handful of individuals. It will be the whole church. And it will not be five-minute daily prayers that make it happen. Part of this is just gets back to what the Roman, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the official in this story. So often we, he did it out of love for his son and he did it out of desperation. Do we love Jesus that much? Are we desperate to see the kingdom come in this place in unprecedented power? Not for, again, not like the crowd, not to just see a show, <laughs> but out of deep love for our Savior, and deep love for our neighbors. That is what we pray for. So now I'm sitting here going, Lord, what do we, uh, how do we do this? Um, and I feel like giving a couple of options. One is, for this today, I would like anyone who feels the burden for God to move in unprecedented ways, to come forward and, and join hands. And for people who don't uh, 
feel that particular burden but have other burdens, you can stay where you are and pray where you are. Or if you want to, you could even gather some people where you are. But today, I feel like we need to come to the front and pray together. So I'm going to ask uh, the worship team to come up. And I'm going to ask you to stand. And if you, uh, go ahead, uh, you can stand. And, uh, and if you do one of those three things, stay and pray where you are, get with someone and pray, or come to the front and let us pray for the Spirit of the Lord to have His way here. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for hearing the cry of your people. Lord, start with each of us individually. Fill us with your spirit. Clean us up, Lord. 
We ask you to forgive us because, Lord, we have tolerated too much of the world at times in us. So help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. Forgive us our sins and help us to walk in new ways. Break the power of addictions. Break the power of bad habits. Forgive us, Lord, and fill us. And Lord, we pray, we pray for, we want to see more people have their lives transformed by the power of your word, Lord Jesus. We want to see more people experience your incredible salvation. So Lord, help us to reach out to our neighbors. Help send us people and help us go to people. And Lord, we want to see lives changed. There's just so much bondage out there. We want to see people set free. And we want them to know your incredible love, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray for healing. We pray for provision. There are people here, they don't know how they're going to pay some of their next bills. Lord, we pray for miraculous provision. And we also pray for wisdom <laughs> to go with that. And we pray, Lord, above all, for your name to be glorified. We want to see your glory in this place. We want to see Jesus. And Lord, help us to walk the 20 miles it takes, if that's what it takes, step by step in prayer, to see your face, to hear your voice, to feel your touch, to have life as you meant it to be lived. Help us to settle not for less, Lord. We don't, want, we don't want to settle for less. And so bless us, Jesus. Bless us. Hear the cries of your people. And the first prayer, the most important prayer, Lord, at least chronologically, is put a hunger and a thirst in all of us. Help us, Lord, to want you more than the six other things on the list. We actually want more than you. Help us, Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God, to love you with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. Help us, Lord. And then, Lord, we know once you take us there, once you create the hunger and thirst for righteousness, all kinds of things are going to happen. Be first in our lives, Jesus. Be first in our lives. Hallelujah. We ask this in your name. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Where you're standing, let's just, let's sing our last song. Just where you're standing and then we'll, we'll be dismissed unless you want to stay and pray some more. <laughs> we will not cast you out.
true. Oh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Oh, upon Jesus. God bless you, and, and may the praying just begin.